reading of the scriptures uh, from the book of Acts, chapter 2, reading verses 1 to 13, and I invite your reverent uh, hearing of the public reading of God's word from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem uh, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please join me for another occasion for prayer. Uh, if you uh, bear uh, any semblance at all to, uh, to me, you on occasion resist change, particularly if it's great change, unprecedented change. I mean, all of us are probably fairly conservative about great, stupendous, earth-churning change. We want to say, ah, let's wait a minute and think about this, or maybe do it differently, or have a vote, or call the experts in. Uh, well, I, I suspect the disciples were a little bit like that. And, uh, uh, and so uh, Jesus sends his spirit, who is going to institute radical change, stupendous change. It begins here uh, and then is unraveled through the rest of the book of Acts. It will tell us, uh, describe that change over and over, uh, if you will, uh, uh, by different camera shots. Church change, individual change, uh, a national change is going to occur from one to many, on and on. Uh, we see that change in the event of verses 1 to 4, the coming of the Spirit. And then there's a response. Uh, and we'll look at that response as it will intensify uh, the end of the chapter. Uh, but uh, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is, as is very obvious, a, a theophany. God comes. The Spirit is God. The Spirit comes and He shows up in a very profound, radical way. 
Uh, and he does many things. Uh, he will, we will learn in Peter's interpretation of the event. Uh, uh, he will begin the reign of the Lord upon the earth and inaugurate the end time temple as well as the end time restoration uh, and empower the people of God to witness. All of those things reference great change. And some people resist them. I understand that. Uh, we should be very careful about resisting the Spirit because of the change. And that change, uh, as I uh, suggest to you, occurs not just in Acts, the church, the people, the disciples, the apostles. It should occur in us, each one of us. Uh, should begin over time and in degree to manifest that we're a people of radical change because of the theophany of God. Uh, well, first and foremost, the Spirit comes in power. Uh, the setting is the upper room uh, that was near the temple. Uh, the 120 are gathered. Uh, as you know, Pentecost was uh, the feast of first fruits. It was a harvest festival. Uh, we don't uh, live in an agricultural community in Oklahoma City, but uh, I suspect different parts of the world there's harvest festivals in churches and towns. Well, this is a harvest festival, celebrating harvest. Interesting, it's not part of this text, but there's a greater harvest yet to come. We'll see it in the end part of uh, Acts 2. Uh, but, but again, let's look at Acts 2, verses 2 and 3. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were setting, sitting. Pardon me. And there appeared to them tongues as with fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Each one of them. I, I, to me, I take that as the entire 120. Uh, the text is uh, a fulfillment of uh, many, many texts, but... Uh, in immediate sense, uh, fulfillment of uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, John says, as for me, one is coming after me that will baptize you in the Spirit and fire. That's being fulfilled right here in this text. Spirit and fire. Uh, it's also uh, something of fulfillment of... Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus says they're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the significance is radical change that, again, we will study in the rest of this book. Uh, this is also, I think, uh, parallel to the uh, theophany of God. And that begins the parallel. God shows up in a very profound way. I mean, I, as you know, I believe God is omnipresent. But there are times, radical times, where he intensifies his presence in very profound ways. And an Old Testament parallel to this event is uh, uh, Exodus uh, chapter 19 and verse 18. Uh, and I think the parallel there is uh, not only in uh, the theophany of God, but uh, in, in what occurs. Uh, Exodus 19 uh, in the 18th verse. So it came down on the third day when it was, pardon me. Uh, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. 
That's another parallel besides the theophany, the descent of the Lord, but the presence of fire. Uh, it suggests to me a radical reality uh, that Sinai was a prototypical temple. Uh, in the ancient Near East, gods lived on the mountains. Sinai is a mountain. And again, to me, it's just the copycat religions copying God. He lives on a mountain, so what are they going to do? Well, my God lives on a mountain too. You know, but just people are always copying elements of the Christian faith. Uh, but, but, but in the ancient Near East, as here, God uh, lives on a mountain. Uh, uh, and he descends in fire on Sinai. Uh, and notice, as you know, at Sinai, uh, special access was given to Moses. Uh, the people, by and large, were excluded. They were warned not uh, to draw near. So something radical is occurring in this greater fulfillment. This goes way beyond uh, Moses, way beyond to a handful. Uh, and it's also remarkable change in that God is drawing near. And you and I know that that's a radical truth. If God didn't draw near to us, we'd be in a sorry estate in a bad way. So that the end time temple is now, uh, is now and uh, God dwells in us. Uh, even, even the temple of Solomon was a prototypical temple indicating the coming of Jesus Christ. Now it's non-architectural. Uh, God doesn't dwell in architectural temples anymore. So where does he dwell? He dwells in us. And that, my friend, is radical, stupendous change. Uh, let's look at uh, confirming text, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 and verse 19. And uh, just again, as we follow here, the scriptures tell the great story. Paul says, uh, 19th verse, you do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Meaning the Holy Spirit lives in us. Where does God dwell? He dwells in temples. We are the end time temple. Uh, what is just as important you know, by, uh, by way of... Uh, by way of application, uh, is the fact that uh, Corinthian church, as individuals, needed to clean up their temple. Uh, verse 18, immediate context, flee immorality. What a, what a message for our culture. Uh, why should it be true of us? Because... God dwells in us. Radical event, affecting radical change. The whole world seems to be rushing to immorality. We should be fleeing it. Because we are temple of God. Notice again, contextually, the 20th verse. After Paul says, you're the end time temple. You are the temple. For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. What do architectural temples do? Well, we stand off, we admire the architecture. Oh, how beautiful. Oh, it was built over. I remember I attended a, uh, uh, went to a church in England. They, they spent like 100 years building it. We are 
the glory of God lives in us. So we should be radically different. People should see radical change because that's what God does when he comes and takes up residence. Uh, the, uh, the text in Acts is, uh, is also an, another very, very important allusion. Uh, by allusion, I mean that uh, Luke is borrowing from the theology and texts of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 44, uh, in verse 3. Uh, uh, the context of the prophet Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, is the promise of the end-time restoration. It has an immediate fulfillment in the life of the nation, but greater, more intense fulfillment he here in the book of Acts, the life of the church. Radical fulfillment. Uh, Again, Isaiah chapter 44 uh, and verse 3. And simply notice the parallel context. Uh, For I will pour out water on you on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. Uh, this too is an is a Old Testament uh, fulfillment. Uh, same uh, promise occurs in uh, Isaiah chapter 32, uh, verse 15. Sometimes radical change uh, is reduplicated in radical promises, repeated again and again. Exodus, uh, pardon me, Isaiah 32, 15, till the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. So, promise of the pouring out of the Spirit, guess what's happening in the book of Acts, chapter 2? The Spirit is poured out. And the references to fertile ground is not literal, it's radical change that's going to occur in the life of the church. Great fertility in the church. Not in an agricultural sense, of course, but in gathering a harvest as witnesses to the glory of God. Uh, the context of Isaiah chapter 44 is is uh, God's reassurance that he's not finished with them. And what a great promise. And think of you in your individual life. Some of you are saying, because I, I say that because I know I, I do. Oh, woe is me. I'm untimed. God has forgotten about me. He's taken the receiver off the hook. He's erased my name from the Lamb's Book of Life. Woe is me. Only my wife and chicken soup can begin to fix it. But yeah, we need to be reminded the Spirit of God does not forget His people. He comes to reassure Israel in verses 1 and 2 uh, that He's not finished with them. And He validates it in a promise of restoration. Uh, Isaiah 44 uh, in verses uh, 3 to 5. Uh, promise of restoration. That's why I mentioned earlier that I believe that the end time restoration has begun. It's begun in Acts. Begun, it begins with the life of Jesus, but it's intensified in another profound way on uh, the coming of the Spirit. Uh, and, and with that, there's the promise of restoration. Uh, and we, uh, if, if Luke is borrowing from Isaiah, and I think he is in this imagery of the pouring out of the Spirit, he's also borrowing contextually the end-time promise of the restoration started in a radical way 
and uh, the outpouring of the Spirit. Isaiah, again, 44, uh, 3 to 5. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by the streams of water. And this one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call upon the name of, of uh, the God of Jacob. And another will write it on his hand, I belong to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. The reason for the reassurance is the divine intervention of God. You, you cannot minimize that and what it means. The Spirit of God has come to live in you. That God, in the case of Israel, will come in divine intervention and will turn judgment into the blessing of transformation. It's captured in uh, language of trees and flourishing verdant gardens, but it's a spiritual transformation. And that change, ladies and gentlemen, applies to us. Uh, I understand sometimes it starts very slow, and, uh, but it, it grows with intensity because of the Spirit of God, the grace of God. Uh, the text of Isaiah 44.3 is a parallel in which the first part uh, is uh, physical uh, and then uh, defined by spiritual change. Uh, I'll pour out my, my spirit. Uh, and and uh, great things will occur. People will become like poplars by streams of water. Not too long ago, I uh, preached through uh, Psalm 1. Streams of water. Trees by streams of water. Does that ring a bell? The man who gives his life to the Word of God be like a, a tree planted by the rivers of water. He will bear great fruit and his leaf will not wither. My friend, that's radical change. Radical change. There are some places in the geography of the United States of America, I can name a few, like western Oklahoma, you don't see a lot of trees. Sometimes there's just not a lot of water. And uh, we should be very careful as a church of Jesus Christ. Because God has watered us in the outpouring of the Spirit, and the Spirit affects the bringing forth of uh, fruit, and our leaf does not wither. fall in Oklahoma, winter soon to come. I'm praying in a mighty way that all the leaves of my neighbor's trees will fall on their yard, not mine. Because yes, I still remain selfish and need that radical change of the Spirit of God. But uh, that's what the Spirit of God does. Our leaves don't wither. We bear fruit. It's the promise, Isaiah 44, that the Spirit's going to come and work again. And uh, the fulfillment in Acts 2, the end time restoration has started. Has started, it's begun. And Acts is, uh, is a fulfillment. But you should be part of that fulfillment, change in your life. The church, Grace Bible Church, should be as well. And uh, Isaiah, again, uh, verses 4 to 5, uh, gives the effects, uh, spiritual transformation, uh, in uh, the imagery of the man of God 
by the streams of living water. Uh, uh, the second uh, change in verse 5 of Isaiah 44 is uh, the people will identify with the Lord. They'll call upon His name. We're, we're going to see what happens but when, when that occurs in the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, they, will, they will identify with the church. Uh, I, I love the imagery. Again, it's metaphorical. They'll uh, write His name on their hand. Like you, when you used to cheat in calculus class. You wrote things on your hands. I know you did because I tried it as well. It never worked for me. I, grace of God, I ever made it out. But that's the grace of God in changing God's people in a radical way. Great imagery. Now it's occurring in a visible way. The end state that will occur immediately is, uh, in Peter's interpretation, we're going to watch witness. And witness is part of that change. Uh, it's an important event in the book of Acts. We're going to study witness uh, individually and uh, corporately in missionary journeys. It's part of this change. That you and I are witnesses. Uh, Isaiah tells us so. Uh, uh, it's very important to recognize all that that means. I'll just touch on it very quickly. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus refers to himself as the faithful witness. Because he never compromised. He never turned back. He never flinched. He set his face like a flint to Jerusalem and the cross. He went. He was a faithful witness. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. There's a martyr. He's being praised. Jesus says of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. Applied to Jesus. Should apply to this church. Should apply to you and me. It's part of the radical change. God doesn't come to hide Himself in temples far away that only a few people could come to. Arduous journeys going to be a universal spreading of the temple as God comes in the Spirit to dwell in His people. By the way, I think this occurs uh, indirectly uh, something else that's just as radical, and that is uh, that the twelve that have been reconstituted, we studied last week, the twelve were reconstituted, uh, now become uh, harbingers of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the end-time Israel. He calls himself that in the servant songs. And now the twelve are reconstituted. Uh, and they are witnesses too. Uh, and so they are in time Israel in the end time Jesus Christ. That's a radical event. A radical change. Uh, that Jesus would say, you are my witness, my faithful ones. Grace of God, may it be so. Uh, and this will be confirmed in... Peter's interpretation of the event. Uh, the event occurs, uh, there's an immediate response, uh, but Peter's going to interpret it in the latter part of the chapter. Uh, and the Spirit again comes in power to reconstitute Israel for the purpose of witness. In the Old Testament, 
What happened to Israel's witness? It simply went out. It flickered as a candle and went out. Uh, Israel failed as a witness, became idolatrous. That changes, begins here. Radical change. And there appeared tongues of fire that rested upon each of them. Again, Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Uh, the, uh, the event here, I think, is another Old Testament illusion. Profound significance. Uh, book of Genesis. Uh, chapter 11. People gather together and they say something to the effect, you know, God uh, commanded us to uh, spread abroad. And we don't want to do that. We want to do what we want to do. Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. They want to reject the command of God. Now, I love the fact they want to build a temple to reach up into heaven. Uh, my friend, I assure you that's an impossible event. Not only physically, of course, but spiritually. Absent Jesus Christ, you can reach nowhere. And will go nowhere spiritually. If you're not a Christian, it's very significant. And so what does God do? God says, verse Genesis 11, 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. Notice, confuse their language. So he's going to give them multiple language to sow confusion, to force them to spread abroad. That they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord forces them to scatter. But now something radical is occurring. Uh, again, the event is an allusion to the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Uh, the context is a rebellion. Uh, they refuse God's mandate to fill the earth. Uh, essentially, they're telling God, uh, we're not going to be your witnesses. So that begins to change here. They want to be autonomous from God and build their own pagan temple, a ziggurat with a staircase to heaven upon which the gods would descend. Sheer folly. Uh, men can't reach up into heaven. God must come down. And that's what has occurred in Acts 2. That God has come down to live in us. God mocks and curses them and scatters them in language. Uh, but in Acts... God comes down in multiple languages uh, to bless, meaning corollary to reversal of the curse. The confusion in Genesis carries over into this event, but Peter will dispel uh, it with his interpretation beginning in uh, verse 14. Furthermore, the nations are now being gathered by the singularity of the language of the gospel. Radical event, radical change. Uh, the majesty of the gospel, that God comes down, condescends, the incarnation, the coming of the Spirit. In verse 4, the power of the Spirit fills them. They were all filled. I want to make a quick
quick theological corollary here. You think, well, I can reach up to God anytime I want to. No, my friend, you are utterly passive, and they're passive here. They were filled. It's in the passive voice. The passive voice meaning you are acted upon by the grace of God. The Spirit of God comes to fill the 120. They're simply in a room. Radical change occurs. The grace of God descends and fills them. They're utterly passive. They have to be acted upon. That's why an initial element of receiving the gospel is God save me, I'm lost. God rescue me, I'm dead in sin. God change me, I cannot change myself. Radical change. Uh, the spirit, of course, is the content. There's a couple of illustrations of this that I think that are very significant in light of the context. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse, verse 15. Uh, reference to the coming of John the Baptist. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a partial fulfillment in John the Baptist, but here it's much more universal and radical. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 67, his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. That's what's going to occur in Acts chapter 2, very radical way. Parallel for us, by the way, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 18. Uh, do not get drunk with wine. Uh, parallel this quite humorous uh, because they, they're going to accuse the apostles of being drunk uh, when it's the Spirit. It's funny how the world will look at the majesty of the world, even the crea created order, and even the birth of a child, and uh, ascribe it to something else. That's dangerous ground. But uh, here they ascribe uh, the great event is being drunk with wine. Peter's going to interpret it. Always has to be the case. Uh, gifted interpreters, Peter will be. Uh, alcohol, of course, can have a controlling influence. Uh, they're to reject that for a life under the Spirit. That's what we're to exhibit as part of our witness. Uh, again, the content of the filling in the uh, book of Ephesians is uh, not specified uh, but a cognate noun is uh, used in Ephesians 1 uh, and Ephesians 3.19. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God filling through Jesus Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The majesty of what happens, change, when the Spirit comes and affects regeneration. And uh, Christ, uh, by the power of the Spirit, begins to create the fullness of the presence of Jesus Christ. In like manner, Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I think it's a reference to the presence of Christ in our lives by His Spirit, exhibiting the incredible change, caught up, if you will, in something of the corollary language that we were being conformed to the image of Christ. What a radical change in this world. We're being conformed to the image of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a hint of this in 
perhaps a partial fulfillment of this in a very beautiful way uh, expressed in uh, Exodus chapter 35, verse 35. Uh, Moses is gathering skilled uh, artisans to build the tabernacle. And when they're finished, as you know, uh, the Spirit of God will come live in that tabernacle. Fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ, tabernacle now, heavenly places. But uh, of the gathering of the skilled artisans, notice what Moses says in Exodus 35, 35. He has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver, designer, and embroiderer, and all different types of cloth and fine linen, and to weave and to perform every work and makers of all designs. Incredible beauty. For us, it's Jesus Christ. And now it's the Spirit of God in us. Incredible beauty. One of the things that, by way of application, I'll tell you, it's very significant for our age. We live in an age that is profoundly struggling with utter, sheer, bald insignificance. I count for nothing. I don't mean anything. My life doesn't matter. Doesn't happen in the church. The Spirit of the living God comes to dwell and manifest the glory of Jesus Christ. The insignificance is everywhere in our culture. Substance abuse, people abuse, Child abuse, parental abuse, it's incredible. And the incredible, overwhelming display is that in Jesus Christ, it is all made different. By God, the Spirit comes to live and to dwell. In Ephesians 5, uh, the filling is detailed in 19 to 21. They begin to speak, singing, giving thanks, and Subjecting themselves one to another. Power of the Spirit in those results. And that's something, again, in the context of Acts that we will look at the rest of the book. Uh, Luke then transitions uh, us to the street outside the house. So the apostolic company leaves the room. Uh, and they begin to speak and give utterance of the mighty deeds of God. That's witness, verse 11. Uh, and they're fulfilling the mandate for witness. Uh, and the Spirit is the power of witness. The Galilean Christians are supernaturally enabled to speak Gentile languages. It's a miraculous gift. Uh, uh, and they're speaking those languages to the diaspora Jews living in Jerusalem, to pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the feast, and to proselytes. Uh, by the way, I, I say this very quickly. Uh, can't dwell on it because of time. Uh, this is the archetype for the gift of tongues. And that's where you go to learn, oh, what is this gift of tongues? Well, here in Acts 2, it's a speaking of languages that you don't know. Foreign languages, literal languages, not some ecstatic, heavenly uh, uh, speak. I mean, even the context of Paul's use of that in 1 Corinthians uh, radically tells us that. He said, if I speak in the uh, tongues of men and angels, but it's hyperbole, he can't speak in the tongue of angels, but he's just simply hyperbolically expressing, if I could do these things, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And that's one of the events of radical change, the presence of the love of God uh, for himself and, of course, uh, for our brethren.
So the Galilean Christians speak and uh, the Jews understand. Uh, so uh, this is the mission of witness of the new Israel to the old, telling them that radical changes occur, radical transition from old to the new. That's why I turned to the Old Testament and then brought you to the new. Looking at Old Testament institutions like the tabernacle, but now it's all change. Everything is new, radical change. Uh, and here, uh, the radical witness of the new Israel is engaged in the content is there is no forgiveness in the old temple. There is only forgiveness in the message of the new, Jesus Christ. That's a message people are desperate to hear. That God in His grace and mercy forgives. Response uh, is twofold. Uh, some ask, uh, what does this mean? That they're speaking in uh, our native languages, the great works of God. Uh, well, the Spirit is indicating great shift, old to new. Uh, the other response is, oh, well, they're, they're drunk. They're full of wine. They discount the miracle of the Spirit. Uh, we are, ladies and gentlemen, in our culture, long-term ripe, discounting the miracles of the Spirit in life, in birth, in the church. Be very careful about discounting the miraculous attributing it to something that's utterly cheap, like getting drunk. That's what our culture does. We're different. We don't discount any of it. We praise God, thank Him for all of His manifold gifts, as we should. But it is a reminder that that's a dangerous course. It's also a reminder that we will study the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, it's dangerous to oppose uh, the witness and to ridicule it. Uh, and the power of the Spirit will help the church persevere. And we will look at that in Acts, and we should see it in our church, that we persevere in witness regardless of opposition, regardless of the venue that it comes from. So the Spirit comes in power to give new power to the people of God. The end time restoration, it's purposeful in witness. It's a new era of great change. I, I simply remind you, if you're a Christian, that witness reached you. And the Spirit drew you to Jesus Christ. And the Spirit gave you a new heart. And Jesus now comes in the sacrament of the Lord's table to remind us of the majesty of the grace of God who descended, who came to us, and who begins to affect change. And who comes uh, this morning in a very intense way uh, to fellowship with us uh, in the sacrament of the Lord's table. Uh, by way of introduction, uh, if you're a visitor to Grace Bible Church, I'd simply remind you.